Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I'll be focusing on a bit of verse 1. But I'll read all of 1 through 7. Hear then God's infallible word, preserved for us his people. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day, a day in which we can be glad and rejoice, for you are great and holy. Uh, Please guide us today in looking into your word that we would stay close to the old paths, understanding you and your beloved Son, whom you sent for our salvation. Do guide me and my lips in proclaiming your truth to your people. May these seeds fall on fertile soil. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to this uh, cathedral of the Christian faith. As one writer put it that I quoted last time, and this chief book of the New Testament containing the purest gospel, as another writer from centuries past put it. I pray that you've been blessed in the repeat reading of this whole epistle, if time allowed and that the Lord has graciously enlightened your mind and the knowledge of Christ as you wear in those new pathways through the repeat reading of God's word. Well, last time we focused on just the first word of this verse, of this chapter, of this book, Paul. He, a real man, in real history, wrote this letter. Uh, He was a real live person with a personal history that we looked into that God used for his glory as he brought him, that is Paul, to repentance. I didn't comment on it last time, and I won't get into the detail now, but just to kind of create context for you as an audience as to who he wrote to. This is more clear in verse 7, and we'll get to that eventually. But in a nutshell, it was the Christians at Rome. As verse 7 again says it, those in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Saints, of course, are holy ones, set apart, made holy not by their good works or acts of generosity or whatever human virtues we might aspire to or try to put on display, but made holy by God's effectual calling out of darkness into light. So a few friends, neighbors here on this Lord's Day in this particular congregation and gathering of people to listen to God's word and to worship him, if you have been similarly called, redeemed, set apart, then this letter is written for you. May it be an encouragement, providing instruction and comfort. And not knowing everyone's hearts here, if that is not uh, clearly known to your own mind and conscience that you are called of God, may this still provide instruction and comfort. Maybe some discomfort in a state of sin or of unrepentance, but comfort as to know where true hope lies, right? Uh, Despair comes when we don't know the solution. Hope comes when we do know the solution. We might have to move toward it, and that is still hopeful. So that said, speaking to all of you, my 
precious friends, today on this great morning. Let us move into our clause for the day. A bondservant, as it is in the New King James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Today's focus is mostly going to be on that one word, servant, as other translations have it. I want to look at, and your outlines make this clear, three main areas of focus. What is the meaning of that actual word in the Greek text translated into the English? What is the significance of Paul being a servant? And what are the implications to us to be servants? And one thing that I love about the book of Romans is that it is profoundly countercultural. Over and over again, Paul contrasts the gospel and gospel principles with pagan principles, gospel living with pagan living. In this way, it is very relevant for us today, just as it was to the first hearers, the first readers of this letter. Back then, it struck hard against a culture very much in need of being Christianized. Today, let's be honest, pretty much the same. If we want to be generous, we could say our culture needs to be re-Christianized. Either way, either the first time or again, we need to see greater Christian influence and effect in our day. So this is certainly true when it comes to the topic of serving, I believe, especially as it touches on leadership and on submission. I believe much of what we see in, whether it be civil government, business leadership, church leadership, family, and again, with leadership comes people submitting, so it works both ways. Even if you don't see yourself in a position of leadership in those areas of society, it still affects you. How do you submit as a Christian servant to these authorities? So I believe much of what we see in our day in all these different spheres of life is not walking in accord with God's word. Sometimes it claims to be by way of a pretty veneer or smooth talking with key buzzwords but it is not conforming to God's word. So friends, let us join Paul's team and be about casting down idols that exalt themselves against God, as he words it. Those idols might actually be erected in our own hearts and our lives. This often makes it more difficult and yes, more painful to tear them down, but also more important that they get torn down. Our own pride is insidious. It is very quick to rear its ugly head. And I pray that today's text, made powerful by God's Holy Spirit, working in each and every one of our hearts, will be effective in bringing every thought captive to his word. Amen? Hopefully that's a useful goal for our time together. Well, before we get to servant, there is that little word A ahead of it. Friend, pastor friend joked with me this week, so are you going to preach just one word this week? What's the next word? Technically, in the Greek, the next word is servant. If we're going off the English text, it would be a, the article there. So to not skip over it, but really to include it in with servant. You students of grammar, which I'm sure there's many in our homeschooling crowd here, know that uh, the article is significant. Uh, the indefinite article here, a or an is the indefinite articles, uh, refers to something generic. As I worded in your outline there, indefinite article identifies one among others. So Paul is not here setting himself apart as something unique and distinctive. That would be prideful, worthy of praise. The definite article speaks of something that is unique, that stands out among others. The definite article points out one among a crowd. 
So Paul in his humility here, and it's correctly translated from the Greek and for English clarification, adding the, the indefinite article, is showing himself to be one among many servants. Paul in his language sets an example and makes an important lesson to us to not claim preeminence. In fact, elsewhere, it's Ephesians 3.8, he expressly puts himself lower. He rightly brought himself down from any presumed eminence. eminence. He was a servant. I'm a servant. Each of us is servants, our servants. And we're going to come back to this more in a bit. But remember for the time being that even the presence of this small word, one English letter, shows humility is a key factor in proper Christian service. And then in this clause, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, there is the obvious of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to save a fuller explanation of this probably to next time, next sermon. But just briefly for now, Jesus is the object of all true service, right? Uh, people in our culture will try to, or even in the family, think, who am I serving? I'm serving the person right in front of me. In the family, it's going to be the parent. In the job, it's going to be your boss. In the church, maybe your elders. Uh, all of those are first level, not the actual person you are trying to serve. So here, Paul wisely identifies the true object of his service is Jesus Christ. In a moment, we'll see some detail of some of those characteristics um, implied by the structure of this sentence and who it is he's serving. But to conclude this uh, introduction, note, as I put there in the outline, true service is evidence of a changed heart, right? What is not of faith is sin. So any acts of service that might be really good copies or, and genuine actions, they're not truly pleasing to the Lord if they're not done out of faith. So it must be evidence of a changed heart. It is the outworking of a life captivated by the Lord Jesus. So having become a prisoner of him and then consecrated to him in our acts of service. One last thing about the introduction, pointing to your outline on the back. Uh, I was actually looking for an infographic, you know, some Christian thing about service. Couldn't find some pretty illustration that I was looking for. Instead, I found this, which I'll put a digital version online, but if you have good eyes, you can zoom in on this later. And it has the red arrow pointing to us. And what I really wanted to capture here, how I think it's relevant to our sermon today, which is to say there's a lot of work to be done, right? There's a lot of service to be done in the name of Christ for the expansion of his gospel. Not to be discouraged that the circle we occupy, that little one lower right, is so small compared to all the other ones, the black being the whole, and then if you follow the lines of those sort of greenish-blue circles to us. And note this was not put together by Christians. There are pseudo-Christian groups arrayed around that Christianity circle. So really, I would put those of the true faith, they're only in that small circle with the red arrow. So there's a lot of work to be done here as we serve Christ to extend his kingdom. That said, for why I put that page there for you. But coming to our topic today, focusing in on the word servant. Dictionary definition. A little caution. We can go to the dictionary, but that's only useful often in terms of a technical definition because gospel writers, Bible writers, use a word not always according to its preceding usage, preceding meaning. So we don't want to try to gather too much dogmatic information from the dictionary. But using that as a starting point, we see the root comes from to tie or to bind, to ensnare or to capture. 
uh, whether that be by voluntary or involuntary slavery or servitude, the key idea is being in subjection to or subserviency to. We obviously want to start with the Old Testament usage. How does that word play out among Old Testament writings, Old Testament people? Many, many times, 800 times, and then even more than that if you get into the verbal as well as the noun forms of this word. As I cited here, some things for you to follow up on. Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, major prophets, minor prophets, many, many people are cited as servants of God or, as it's often worded, my servant, my servant Abraham, my servant Moses. And so it is a common word, the corresponding word there, ebed, uh, corresponding to the Greek word doulos. And so it is very common throughout the Old Testament to read, who are the servants of God? What did they do? How and why did God regard them as his servant? Some more technical details come in Exodus 21, repeated for us in Deuteronomy 15. How was it that the people of God regarded and acted upon slaves? And uh, in reading preparation for this, some commentators really uh, demurred, I'll say. They didn't want to translate it as slave here in Romans 1 uh, because of the connotations, and, and I understand that. For that reason, they translated it as servant. I see the New King James is kind of going a hybrid route and calling it bond servant, bond uh, communicating a bit more that constraining to service, but not quite so far as slavery. But I think we can understand it properly. Slavery is not necessarily an oppressive form that we might uh, have the concept of it in our culture, uh, but is the idea of being constrained to service. And that's the key idea here, subject to. So in Exodus 21, if you turn with me, I want to read these few verses Starting at verse 5 and a few verses following. If the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man, well, let's just stop there. <laughs> so the idea that a man can be in service, in servitude, he can be a slave. And if he wants to continue, because God's law constrained the servitude of Hebrew slaves to six years, if he wants to stay longer, if he says, this is a good place, I have a loving boss, I have extended family, they are required to stay, he can choose to stay longer. Upon doing so, he is marked with that all, the hole through the ear. And we'll come back later to that mark. So the idea, it can be temporary, long-term, service, if a Hebrew chose, it can be um, slavery as we would uh, conceive it more modern in terms of being forced, forced labor, or voluntary, either way. Now coming to New Testament usage, and the word there is doulos, probably the most common way we know of that in modern English. Those of us who are familiar with you know, home birth and such talk about doulas, that is to say a birth assistant. Um, but as it's cited there in those four examples, it is a very broad range of use, how it comes up in the New Testament scriptures. It's ethical, 
I'll cite that first example in Romans 6, 17 through 20. We had that as one of our readings here. You're slaves of sin versus slaves to righteousness. It's also ecclesiastical, this quote here from 2 Corinthians 4. Ministers, that are leaders of the church, are servants of the Christian community. It's also economic. Uh, all Christians are Christ. There in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking about uh, if you're in economic servitude as a slave, you are a, a free man in Christ. If you're free, a free man in terms of labor, you're a slave of Christ. So no matter your economic relationship, no matter your economic standing, we are all Christ's. We are owned by him. And then this prime example, and I give two scriptures there, Philippians 2 and Matthew 20, Jesus in the incarnation is the preeminent servant. He uh, stepped from all eternity, born of a woman, came to serve us, not to be served. So that is the, obviously the highest usage of the word doulos in the scriptures. Moving from that, what is the significance of Paul being a servant? We have this word used throughout scripture. Uh, we have it narrowed here for us in Romans and in these other scriptures as to how Paul conceives of being a servant. First, and here we come back to a bit of what next time's sermon will be, is that Jesus is the divine Lord. If Old Testament scripture talks about servant of X, fill in the blank there, right? Who did they speak of Moses or David or all those others I listed there as being servants of? Servants of the Lord, servants of Jehovah. So here, Paul, speaking of himself as servant of Jesus Christ, is clearly drawing a parallel between Jesus Christ and Jehovah. So Jesus, our, the one we serve, the one all Christians serve, is the divine Lord. Next, he is the master. Remember, as I've cited there, Acts 9. We covered that in some detail last time. Uh, Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He was, let's put it mildly, constrained to be humbled before God, right? Uh, he was not expecting to, he was not planning to, he was not on a little side venture on that day headed to Damascus. He was constrained to the Lord's service. And then Galatians 6.17, I'm going to read that too, if you'll turn with me. Second half of that verse, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Uh, many commentators see in this bearing in his body the marks a parallel with that all in Exodus chapter 21 that I read. We know from other scriptures, Paul had many marks of suffering. He talks about the various trials that he endured, many afflictions of his body. And so he conceives of this as being a mark just like the willing slave of Exodus 21, who wanted to stay longer, who had a great slave master, one who took care of him and promised him a good future. So too Paul here bears in his body the marks of deciding willingly to serve the Lord Jesus. Another thing to comment on here is the order of the wording. Probably two sermons from now, we'll talk about apostle, the fact that he's called to be an apostle. Somewhat unique in this epistle, and it's the same as uh, Philippians and Titus, Paul puts bondservant of Jesus first. And the other ones I listed there, Ephesians, Galatians, etc., it comes after apostleship. 
The significance I understand from this is the fact that he was not uh, well acquainted with the Romans. We'll see that later, that he had not visited this church yet. He did not plant this church. Uh, the other letters he wrote were to people and to places he'd already spent time, perhaps even founding that congregation. But here, not having really exercised his apostleship in those other ways, either personal relationship or planting the church, he wants to emphasize service, his own humility. And so he puts that first, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Then he mentions, of course, there's no harm in it. He's not exalting himself by saying it to be an apostle, but it bears by way of emphasis that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. So we learn this lesson that servanthood comes first. So to summarize these things, what is it? What is the significance of Paul being a servant? Is that he knows who he serves, Jesus, the divine Lord, that Jesus is his master. And uh, if I might add a detail, I almost forgot. While we know that Jesus uh, constrained him to service there on the road to Damascus, let us not think that Paul served unwillingly. Obviously, it's emphasized in that Galatian passage that he bears the marks of a willing slave. But all of us, by virtue of receiving a new heart, a new mind, a new desire to serve Jesus, at once we were at enmity with him, fighting against him, but having been made willing with a new heart, we find joy and peace in that service. So yes, we're constrained to it. He conquered us, right? He's taken us as his possession, but we also do so willingly with joy and anticipation. And then the third point here about Paul is that servanthood comes first. But then we come to implications for us to be servants. And I confess that in reflecting on this, over these last few weeks, um, and this method of asking questions I actually borrowed from a pastor friend after listening to some uh, sermons of his. And so I hope these are probing to you just as they were to me. And I can't claim any great research or insight other than just pondering this. And uh, in the dark hours of the night, um, not because they were like heavy or sad, but just because it was past sunset, um, God bringing these to my mind, and I pray that they will be useful for you as well. So a first question for us to ponder here on this topic. Who is your Lord? Right. We all serve some master. It's either, as some of the people Jesus interacted with, their father the devil. Right? You remember that situation? They're thinking, you're, you're saying that if we believed Abraham, we would believe you, Jesus. And, but... We are sons of Abraham, so why are you calling us illegitimate? And he says, well, if you really were of your father Abraham, you would believe me. But you don't believe your father Abraham in following me, therefore you are illegitimate. And his point there was that they followed their father. Everybody follows their father. Everybody follows some master. In their case, if you're apart from Jesus, you're following your father, the devil, who is the father of lies. So all of us have a Lord. All of us have a master. Who is it? Can Jesus, can the one true and living God say to you, you are my servant? Those are precious words to hear. And I pray that you can answer, yes, I am his servant. Jesus calls me his servant. Second, do you serve the Lord with awareness that he is truly divine? I encourage you to follow up on uh, several verses there in Colossians 1. There is no doubt, if we investigate the scriptures and have the truth written on our hearts, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. 
Sadly, and it's many of the side circles in that lower right-hand corner down there, much less all the other colored circles, deny that Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God. Do not let that important truth be stolen from your minds and hearts. Be settled and confident that Jesus is fully God. He is divine. There is no true Jesus apart from that fact. That's the great irony of people saying, oh, well, Jesus is a good teacher. He is a wise man. He lived a virtuous life. Well, if those things are truth, true, and he's not divine, he's not a true teacher because <laughs> he spoke a lie in terms of a claiming, claiming eternal sonship with the Father. He did not live a moral life if he uh, was blaspheming God and saying that he could forgive sin. So who Jesus is is part and parcel with his divine nature, and that is the Lord that we all must serve. Third, is your service half-hearted or short-termed? The passage there we refer to is the idea of counting a cost in Luke 14. And I don't mean to say we're, any of us are going to be perfect and full-hearted or uh, long-termed now at a starting point in our service. There will always be some pollution in our minds, in our motives, in our actions. But are we, in so far as we can, uh, purify our consciences, in so far as we can focus diligently on the means of grace, as they were mentioned to us earlier, is our service now full-hearted? Is that our commitment? If we don't start well, we're gonna wander. Once we wander, are we calling ourselves back to full-heartedness? Uh, is it short-term? Uh, have we thought to pursue the Lord for a period while it was convenient, while it was exciting, while our friends were patting us on the back or going to that Bible study with us? What's going to happen when the other hangers-on filter away? Are we going to stick with the prayer meeting? Are we going to stay on course with the Bible reading plan, right? Is your service half-hearted and short-termed, or is it full-hearted and will it endure? The labors of man don't last. <laughs> That's why it's all the more important that our faith be from God, by God, working through us. Next to consider, is our service exclusive? And by that I mean mixed with error, mixed with even other motivations. Is it mixed and polluted? A passage there I quote from Galatians 5 gives two lists. The works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. last half of that is very uh, familiarly known as the listing of the fruits of the Spirit, but before that is all the fruits of the flesh. So I ask myself to consider, I ask each of you to consider, is our service exclusively Holy Spirit motivated? Is it exclusively focused on the things of God? It is so easy to deviate into man-pleasing, into parent-pleasing, into boss-pleasing, into wife or husband-pleasing. For you young people, you think, oh, when I grow up and I have somebody else to serve other than my parents, it's going to be so much easier. No, there's going to be other idols to put in their place. <laughs> there's going to be other people to try and please instead of our God. So to consider for ourselves, is our service exclusive? Is God the exclusive object of our worship? I believe it was Calvin, John Calvin, reformer in the uh, 16th century, who wrote that our hearts are factories of idols. That's I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E. Factories of idols, not idleness as in laziness, but idols as in objects of false worship. Our hearts are idol factories. It is so easy to slide off into worshiping the wrong thing, 
or even the right thing in the wrong way. So let us be focused to ask ourselves and to receive the Lord's correction if, we, if our service is not exclusive, if it has become polluted. And next, is our service horizontal while being grounded in the vertical? And this is what it needs to be. It does need to be horizontal, man to man, as well as vertical, man to God. We can't have one or the other. Uh, we can get out of balance, and many people uh, make an appearance of worshiping because they're doing nice things horizontally. But again, as I referred to earlier, it's not rooted in, grounded in, focused upon our service to God. So there's that passage in James and other places I could quote as well, focuses on the fact that our worship, our good works, being doers of the word, as I think was uh, prayed earlier, must be evidence of a lively faith. Otherwise, it's fake. But a person who claims to be worshiping and doesn't do the good works is also making a false claim. It works both ways. So we must have true faith. What is not a faith is sin. And we must act out and do that faith as an evidence of the good work that God has done within us. And then, is our service painful? Probably wondering, what does he mean by painful? By painful, I mean, does it cost you something? Whether it be time, uh, actual money, uh, effort, maybe injury to your pride, self, in a variety of ways. Not that it has to be painful, uh, but often it does need to be, right? True service needs to cost us something. Um, whether it be a slightly busier schedule than the free time and recreation we would like, or the spending money we're selfishly saving for ourselves that we might need to expend to somebody else's benefit, or just the thought energy of considering other people being burdened with their troubles, having our hearts weighed down by what hurts them, right? We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. A lot of times, I don't want to weep. <laughs> In times where my life's been going good, it's like, don't bother me with these other things. That's not a heart of service. That's a heart of self. So is your service painful? That can be a probing question to examine whether we're really serving others or whether we're serving ourselves and our comfort and our convenience. I want to conclude, before the conclusion, with Psalm 115, verse 1. And this was a passage that a friend of mine preached on a couple weeks ago that was very convicting. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. So think here, whose glory are we seeking in our maybe supposed acts of service? It needs to be, so I just want to end here positively. Don't want you to think I'm condemning you. Everything slightly critical I say is condemning me. But let's end here positively. To you, to God's name, we give the glory. Not my glory. Not the sign on the door, if there was one, saying Dominion Covenant Church's glory, right? But to God's glory. That's who we are serving. But to also end positively, with this uh, quote from Paul David Tripp, a book that in God's providence I was rereading last Sunday afternoon, read the chapter on service. Uh, God timed that very well to plant some thoughts in my mind throughout this week. So he writes, the joy of a true servant is not power. The joy of a true servant is not control. The joy of a true servant is not acclaim. The joy of a true servant is not comfort or ease. And of course, the joy of a true servant is not Position. So if it's not all those things, what is it? 
What gives a servant joy in being a servant is service. May that be our heart's passion this week and the weeks to come, to really serve, to serve others. What benefits and blesses them, and ultimately, what blesses and glorifies God. Amen. Lord, uh, we stand before you humbled as to your greatness, your goodness, your great service. Jesus came and died on the cross, suffered unfathomably for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. May we be filled with your love and a desire to serve others um, somewhat similarly. Of course, we will never serve exactly as Jesus did. It would break us in our humanity. But Lord, may we be burdened to serve others, to meet them in their pain, to uh, come alongside them in their joys, uh, to lift them up as only you can do. May we be so filled by your Holy Spirit that we overflow with rivers of living water into the personal lives, homes, workplaces that you have placed us in. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.